Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Beer and Brexit. Uh, delighted to be able to welcome John Curtis as our guest this evening. Uh, apparently, your, John's first political memory was the death of the Labour leader, Hugh Gateskill, in January 1963. Uh, he studied PP at Magdalen. He studied under David Butler, the original uh, the sort of guru of sophology in this country, uh, who you might remember started a Twitter account at the last election that was well worth a follow. I think it was about, he was almost 90, wasn't he? Uh, I'm older, he's 95 now, I think, yeah. We had a very, very uh, chirpy Twitter feed. Uh, John was part of the BBC TV production team for the 79 election? Correct. I think, was that your first one? You've done every single one since? Correct. And he will be on your screens on the BBC all night on election night. Alas, that's also correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, is this going to be a Brexit election? Yep. Next question. <laughs> you can ring the uh, bell again. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, why do I say that? I say that because both the structure and the dynamics of this election have so far largely be determined by Brexit. So it, on average, if you look at the polls, around 80% of people who voted leave in 2016 say they're going to vote for either the Conservatives or the Brexit Party, primarily the Conservatives. And that number is well up on the equivalent figure for 2017. Uh, meanwhile, on the Remain side, um, again, around 80% of people who voted Remain are going to vote for one of the parties, or say they're going to vote for one of the parties that um, is in favour of having a second referendum, um, or at least are willing to regard it as the second best Brexit option. Um, and again, that figure is also up on where we were last time. So in terms of the structure, um, it's very, very clear that voters are voting quite heavily on the basis of Brexit. Now, of course, what's true is that within both camps, you've still got a choice. And one of the crucial lessons of the last six months is that we haven't changed our minds, hardly any of us have changed our minds about the principle of Brexit, but we keep on changing our minds about what's the best way of, of expressing it vis-a-vis -vis, uh, um, political parties. But it's also true of the dynamics. So if you look at what's happened in the last four weeks, the Conservative Party have gained ground amongst Leave voters. They haven't gained any ground at all amongst Remain voters. The Labour Party has gained ground amongst Remain voters. It's not gained any ground amongst Leave voters. So even all of the dynamics of this campaign has been within camp. Sure, the Tories have held on to their 18% of Remain voters, and the Labour Party have held on to that rump of 14% of Leave voters that they're so desperate to hang on to um, uh, on the other side. But no sign of either of those figures, well, either going up or going down, but certainly not going up. And therefore, the ability of the domestic debate to pull people across the Brexit divide, uh, certainly any such potential has not so far been realised. So you think actually, in a sense, Labour's attempts to, to brand this as a non-Brexit election, or to say at the very least there are lots of other interesting and important issues we should be talking about, have not been particularly successful to date, would you argue? Well, I mean, if you judge it by the criterion of have they managed to win over voters from the Leave side, mm -hmm. which you might anticipate given that if you take the view that at least one of the motivations behind some of the Leave vote was discontent with the way in which international financial capitalism was operating and the way in which, you know, uh, many people have not seen uh, very much in the way of um, improved living standards or improved wages, etc. Given Labour's relatively radical programme, you might think, well, this is exactly designed to try to appeal with the discontent about mm -hmm. the current operation of capitalism. But, I mean, no sign that this is working across. Now, it's true that Labour voters are less likely than the voters of other parties to say that Brexit's the most important issue and they would prefer it to be about health and public service. But, I mean, that's just par for the course. I mean, at the end of the day, the Labour Party is much more comfortable talking about issues associated with social class than they are about Brexit, where we know this is not a left-right issue um, and where, you know, those with less than over educational qualifications and therefore disproportionately people in working class occupations actually voted to leave. I mean, for those of us who live north of the border, this is in, we have an incredible sense of deja vu. The position of the Scottish Labour Party on the constitutional question in Scotland is, could we please talk about something else? <laughs> and the Labour Party's position, because again, it's an independence is an issue that cuts across mm -hmm. the traditional Labour appeal and the traditional Labour coalition. And equally now on Brexit, the truth is that Jeremy Corbyn's, I think, probably principal Brexit view is that could we please talk about something else? Sorry, 
Those are the issues that this country has decided to confront for good or ill. Now, in, in 2015, David Cameron needed a seven-point lead to achieve a majority of 12. Do you think the same sort of numbers apply now? Actually, for interesting reasons, yeah, that is probably roughly right. Um, uh, though we will learn a bit more tonight when you go finally tell us what their so-called multiple regression and post-stratification model says. But um, the calculation basically is this, is that if you, um, given the current level of conservative support, which is back almost up to where they were in 1987, uh, sorry, uh, 2017, um, and uh, given the current state of the Democrats in the polls, which is somewhat weaker than they were at the beginning, you would probably normally say that once you get the Tory, if the Tory lead is about five points, you're at kind of 50-50 territory. Well, maybe they'll get 3-2-6, maybe not, okay? Um, but the Conservative lead in the polls is being inflated now by the fact that the Brexit party has decided not to, to contest seats that the Conservatives are defending. But in the vast bulk of these constituencies, and certainly any constituency that the Conservatives are defending against the Labour Party, the fact that the Brexit Party are, are not standing should be irrelevant, because we are still looking at a 5% swing from, from Labour to Conservatives since last time. So apart from the odd local accident somewhere or another, the Tories should be able to hang on in any case, even if Nigel Farage were standing um, in the seats that they're defending against Labour. So what's left are the much smaller number of seats where the parties are either defending against the SNP, who are slightly up in the polls, or against the Democrats, who are still considerably up in the polls as compared with where they were in 2014. But beyond that, basically, the increase in the Tory leader is going to add votes without necessarily adding seats. Mm -hmm. And on all the evidence I've seen, including indeed a presentation by Anthony Wells of YouGov this, this afternoon, it looks as though the reasonable best estimate uh, of what um, th this is doing to the Conservative leaders is probably adding two points to it that are, as it were, not going to do anything. So you then add two to the five, and we're back at seven, and at the moment we're at 12. So at the moment, the Conservative, I mean, you know, it would be staggering if the UGOV MRP says anything other than Tory majority. The question is how big it is. Um, but um, the, the point is that we're not so far ahead of seven that we can say, oh, well, it's obvious that the Tories aren't going to make it, given all the other variety of uncertainties that surround any calculation of the relationship between uh, votes and seats. I mean, on the, on the YouGov poll, actually, one of the interesting things, they did a briefing this afternoon, and one of the things that seemed to come out is that Labour are doing gradually better as the campaign yes. goes on. And I, yes, I just wonder, that's very I mean, clear. It just, <laughs> do you think... So, but so also have been the Tories... But the interesting thing about the polls of the last week is if you strip out, I mean, again, it's been difficult to follow what's been going on the last fortnight because the polls have been gradually and at different point, time points switching from allowing people to name any party that they might vote for to, in one, by one means or another, confining their choice to the party standing in their constituency, right. okay? And when they make that methodological shift, if you accept that it's going to inflate the Tory vote, then any decline in the Tory vote that's happened during this period is, 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 is capable of being, uh, of, 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 of apparently disappearing. But again, if you, if you actually, for example, look at the polls that have been published this week that use the same methodology as last week, then on average, the Tory votes down by one and a half points and Labour is up too. So it does look as though that perhaps the race has narrowed a little in the last week, um, but we can't really say much more than that. Do you think there's a, I mean, I sort of sense a danger that sort of pundits, commentators, heaven forbid, even some sophologists might yeah. be sort of holding their breath because they're fighting the last war. That is to say, they're thinking back to 2017 and the Labour surge. I, I'm, I am vigorously arguing against any such um, uh, uh, analysis. Uh, my advice to anybody is to look at the situation we are in now and the challenges and the opportunities that presents for the parties now and not to try to draw a parallel with 2017. So I am firmly not in that camp.
Okay, so I mean, the two other issues I suppose worth touching on are turnout and tactical voting. I mean, on turnout, you hear two narratives, don't you? Firstly, yep. Brenda from Bristol, people are fed yep. up, not again. The yep. other is people are more engaged yep. than ever. What is your guess about turnout? Um, well, I have a really boring technical reason as to why turnout should go up, even Fantastic. if. Fantastic. Even, you know, this is, this is the Sue's Corner bit of the evening. Um, <laughs> this is the Sue's Corner bit, my God. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry, have I, been, have I been boring you so far? Sorry, Anna. I've been struggling to keep up. Uh, right. So um, there's a really boring technical reason as to why, even if the motivation of the electorate is no stronger than it was two years ago, why turnout should go up is because the election is going to be fought on a new register. Mm-hmm. It comes in on the 1st of December. And um, therefore, to put it not too bluntly, there will be fewer people on the register who are no longer with us than would be the position okay. in a spring election. And, you know, the highest turnout in a post-war British election was an election that occurred on the 23rd of February 1950. We used to introduce the new register on the 15th of February. All right. So these things make, and particularly in 1974, we had two elections that were fought on the same register. One and the 28th of February, okay. and the other in October. And the turnout went down by about five points between the two. And the analysis at the time said, you know, quite a lot of that was just simply to do with the difference in the efficiency of the register. Um, so, so there's a boreing, really boring anorax reason as to why the officially recorded turnout could well go up. But beyond that. I mean, you know, for what it's worth, I, I am in the camp that says, look, um, one, you know, so far as people's attachment to either the Remain cause or the Leave cause is concerned, we have levels of commitment that we have not seen in our partisan politics since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. We've got 40% of people who say, I'm a very strong Remainer, a very strong Leaver. The last time that we felt about our political parties like that was, frankly, when I was still a teenager, right? Um, so that's point one. Um, the second is British social attitudes has virtually every year since 1983 asked a question that says, how interested are you in politics? And I could tell you what the result was going to be before we'd interviewed a single respondent virtually every year. It would be about 30% would say they're very or quite interested in politics, plus or minus 3%. -hmm. And all the variation was just obviously random variation. But since the 2016 referendum, that figure has been bouncing around 40% rather than bouncing around 30%. All right? So that's indication number two. Indication number three, Ipsos Murray on Friday in their first poll of the campaign found more people saying that this election matters than you know, the, the last two elections. So I know, according to people's self-report, Actually, they, you know, sure, they might be fed up, they might wish it was all over and all the rest of it, but now that the, the ball has been thrown back in their direction, or, I mean, you know, one has to anticipate, given all the uh, evidences, that they're probably going to pick it up. Okay, interesting. And do you think tactical voting will be more important than it has been? in the past in this election, just because of the leverage? Well, I mean, the answer to that is that given where we're at at the moment, either its presence or absence is going to be particularly important. Okay, all right. Right? Sorry, I know. So, I mean, because, of course, the reason why the um, Conservatives are ahead in the polls is not because there is a majority in this country in favour of leaving. Um, indeed, there isn't a majority vote for the Leave for those parties who are campaigning for Brexit in this election. Basically, if you add up the votes for the parties that are in favour of leaving, it comes to about 48%. If you add up all of the votes for parties who are in favour of a second referendum or willing at least to tolerate one, it comes to about 50%. It broadly reflects what we know from the uh, evidence the polls that we've got a narrow lead for Remain uh, more broadly. It's the differential concentration that matters. So the Conservatives now, on average in the polls, have 69% of the Leave vote. This is even higher than the 60% that they had last time, which, and which in turn was above the 45% in the election of 2015. The Tory vote has become much, much more of a Brexit vote. Um, uh, but it, so that con- it's that concentration that matters. And conversely, on the Remain side, at the moment, on average, it's about 44% for Labour, 27% for the Democrats. So all the chatter about um, uh, tactical voting on the Remain side is not some new great political weapon that people have discovered that is going to scupper Boris. It's an indication of the weakness of the Remain side because of the, div- re- the division of their vote. Now, the first point to bear in mind is that not all tactical voting is going to happen on the Remain side of the fence. Indeed, it is probably true that 
quite a lot of the people who have in the last four weeks switched from the Brexit party to the Tories and the other half of Britain where the Brexit party is still standing, because that's obviously been going on as well, are people who are probably if effectively casting a tactical vote. They're making this, coming to the same conclusion that UKIP voters came to in 2017, which is there ain't any point in voting for, for, for the Brexit party because it's Boris who's got the best chance of delivering. So, and indeed, I mean, Ipsos Mori's attempt to try and uh, look at uh, tactical voting on Friday, you know, something like 11 or 12% of the Tory vote is a tactical vote, mm. okay? But, but maybe, maybe it's, it's the, the Leave side's already got pretty much organized and there's not much further for it to go. So the fascinating question is what will happen on the Remain side. And the uh, only way I can, I, I think we can approach this is, well, I mean, the first thing to understand is that not many people vote tactically. Not very many people have ever voted tactically, certainly beyond the, you know, it's a waste of time voting for the Democrats because they, they've got no chance of winning, you know, mm. conundrum. But the, the kind of organized uh, tactical voting uh, designed to achieve a particular political objective is relatively rare because people who vote tactically are people who hate party A and are relatively indifferent between parties B and C. This is a relatively rare psychological combination. Most people who hate party A really like party B and don't care tuppence help me about party C either way. They're quite clear. That's, that's where they stand. So it's a relatively rare combination. Now, against that backdrop, the interesting thing, I think, to do is to compare the situation with 1997. Mm -hmm. Because 1997 is the first election at which there really was tactical voting on a scale that meant that the outcome in terms of seats was notably different from what it otherwise would have been. But hitherto, yes, you can see signs of tactical voting, and particularly the, the Liberal Party as then was occasionally squeezing the Labour vote and thereby getting home. Um, but, you know, one or two seats, right? Mm. But, you know, 1997 is the first time we really noticed that, it, that it's different. And it's therefore worth comparing, well, what are the conditions that help to facilitate? What, you know, it's not loads and loads of people. We are literally talking about, in 1997, the Labour vote on average going up by about three points more in seats where they were clearly second to the Conservatives at the expense of the Liberal Democrats. Mm -hmm. And conversely, the Liberal Democrats, on average, doing about three points better in the places where they were closely challenging okay. the Conservatives at Labour's expense. So it's not a lot of people, all right? But a relatively small number of people who all do the same thing where it potentially can make a difference can begin to have quite a big impact on seats. So, in 1997, there were two things going on that helped to facilitate tactical voting. The one is that anybody who wasn't a Tory wanted to see the Tories out, okay? The government, you know, it's 18 years of Thatcherism. Um, it was the EOM crisis that, and Black Wednesday that destroyed the Tories' reputation for communists. Oh, and by the way, it was a government that was riven over it's this country's yeah. relationship with the European Union. Sound familiar? Yeah, right. Okay. So against that backdrop, there really was a wish by anybody who wasn't a Tory that, oh, for God's sake, can we please get rid of this lot? Um, so that motivation of antipathy towards the Conservative Party was clearly there on, amongst non-Tory voters. And we certainly know that most Remain voters want Boris not to win. Mm -hmm. Right? And to that extent, at least, and most Boris Remain voters do not like Boris. And to that extent, at least, the motivation seems to be there. But there's then a second consideration. In 1997, Labour and the Democrats were playing footsie with each other. Right? Mm -hmm. um, the uh, Paddy Ashton, the then Liberal Democrat leader, had made yeah. it clear that he preferred Labour to be in office than the Tories. He dropped the so-called equidistance policy that the Liberal Democrats had hitherto uh, followed. Um, the two parties had formed a common program of constitutional reform yeah. to which they were committed and informed a lot of what Labour did subsequently. And thirdly, it was an open secret that Tony Blair would form a coalition with the Democrats if he didn't get an overall majority. And then, of course, he got 176, and you know, it was all academic. Um, though the Liberal Democrats still did get a cabinet committee for a while. Um, and equally, it was an open secret that Paddy Ashton was ready to reciprocate. 
This time, of course, we are not in that yeah, situation. Yeah. The Labour Party is still desperate to attack the Democrats for the last war, i.e. the uh, coalition with uh, uh, the Conservatives. And they will also say, look, we are the only party that um, is generally going to offer you a choice. On the Democrats' side, you know, Joe Swinson thinks that Jeremy Corbyn is as useless as Boris Johnson and doesn't really want either of them. Um, yeah. And uh, it will we'll say, look, the reason why uh, Brexit is where it is is, is because Labour MPs voted for Boris Johnson's second reading and therefore you can't trust the Labour Party to stop Brexit. So the, the relationship between these two parties is nothing like as good. So the question is which is going to be more important? Will it be that apparent strength of attachment to remain or leave an apparent relatively indifference to political parties that will actually mean we do get a fair amount of tactical voting on the main side or does the noises, the elite cues of, you know, actually, you know, we don't really like each other, um, uh, dominate? They'll, beyond that, all, that all, all I will then tell you is I've, you know, just played with, well, what might happen if indeed the 1997 levels of tap to voting were, were replicated? And you can knock 20 seats off the Tory tally, which, but at the moment with a 12 point lead, that wouldn't be enough. But you know, if it got a bit narrow, then it could make a difference. But okay. you know, that probably is the high end of what's realistic. And certainly, you know, you see whether, I mean, you know, some, some stuff that's remained nameless at the weekend about, oh, the Liberal Democrats are only, what, 15 points behind in this seat. And if every Labour voter got, up, got, got away and voted for them, they could defeat the local Tory. But I mean, then this is pie in the sky. You're not going to get a tactical squeeze on that scale. Okay. If, but if it's close and if it's behind, and of course, what's also true, and I, I mean, those of you who live in certain parts of West London are now experiencing this for the first time, which is, you know, the Liberal Democrats attempting to paint an area orange, right? And the whole point about that is try to persuade people that actually they've got a chance of winning and that therefore to try to squeeze the Labour Party vote, which is what they've done historically for years in the southwest of England, and now it's been imported into West London. Okay, this is this was a slightly embarrassing set of questions. It's a bit fanboyish next, but I want to oh, I want to find out stuff. about oh. I want to find out about the exit poll. So oh, that stuff. Where, right, okay. Just I just want you to talk us through what happens that week, what you do when you start. And I also, this is a question I've always wanted to ask you: How far ahead of me will you know <laughs> on the day? Do I, I? I take it. I assume you have absolutely no inside knowledge. I have no knowledge. You have no knowledge. Good. No. Right. Excellent. Um, um, okay, um, so um, I mean, uh, I mean, we've been working at the exit poll for weeks. I started on August on what in England is the August bank holiday, um, uh, working like because one of the the, the the central methodological feature of the exit poll is that we try wherever possible to uh, conduct it in exactly the same place as we did last time because the methodology of the poll rests on an attempt to estimate change in vote share, not the levels of vote share. And um, that means, however, you've got to check every flipping polling station. A, has they fiddled with the polling districts and changed the boundaries of the polling district, in which case you may not be able to, to go back to where you did last time. Um, or B, have they, have they changed the polling district in such a way, polling, the location of the polling station, and you can no longer literally poll there. So for example, the thing that causes us grief is if you put a polling station in the same building as a library and um, a cafe, so you don't know whether the people coming out of the building have been to vote or whether they've just gone to the library, right? Uh, that, that, that's hopeless for us. We have to be able to identify who's turned out and voted. So all, all those kind of logistical issues we've been working up for weeks and also checking the sample of constituencies and is it re relevant given the current situation. We're doing all that kind of stuff. But I mean, on the day, it's, I mean, it's kind of straightforward. We started about, I don't know, about 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, because the data comes in throughout the day, mm -hmm. all right? Um, the first dump in the morning is, um, you know, why haven't we got data for X? Why is the refusal rate, rate so high as this and why? So it's progress sheeting, quality checking, because it's the only time of the day you've got to do it. And basically just making sure that the interviewers have indeed turned up and they are there and that we're okay. going to get the data from all the locations. Um, we, I mean, I mean, it does move during the day, okay, um, but shall we say by the second data dump, we've got an idea of where we're going to. And 
No, When's so, that? So, for example, in 2017, 20, 2010, we knew that even from that, that point that the Liberal Democrat numbers were not what people were expecting. Um, in 2017, I couldn't, have told, I couldn't have told you at the beginning of the day that Theresa May wasn't going to get a majority, but I could certainly tell you that it's darned unlikely that she was going to um, get a landslide majority. And the people who told her uh, something different clearly didn't have um, uh, good intelligence. But so so you, you've got, we, we've got an idea of the shape of the problem that's facing. And again, equally in 2015, we kind of knew, knew that we were going to come up with a better story for the Tories than people were expecting. So the, the broad shape yeah, so shall we say, by the time the rest, I mean, we've been now three times in a row we've shot people. I mean, I hope to God we don't shot people a fourth time and the polls get it roughly right. But, the, you know, we, 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 have, we, we kind of have about eight hours notice of at least roughly where we are heading for. Though, as I said, it can move and does move during the course of the day, not least because Tory voters are more likely to turn out and vote early in the day uh, because they're older people. Um, uh, but... Um, well, you know, they've got time to go off in the morning, whereas the working age population it, it tends to work uh, to vote after five o'clock. Um, so yeah, we've got we've got an idea relatively early on as to the kind of story we're probably looking at. So just talking about those last two elections, which surprised you most when you sort of realised what was happening? Was it 2015 or 2017? Or don't you get surprised? I anymore? think 2015. Uh, in 2017, my uh, view, which indeed I did express to a few, is that. <coughs> Given the evidence, um, all the polling evidence, was that anything between a Tory majority of 60 and the Tories just missing was in the range of the possible. Um, it did indeed look as though that maybe things were slipping away from the Tories, perhaps to some degree. So um, I kind of was going, well, we've just got to the lower end of what seems a perfectly reasonable result. Now, the rest of the world went, you know, ballistic, but it struck me as it always quite possible that that's where we would end up. I think in contrast, in, well, certainly in 2010, we had no idea that the Democrats weren't going to gain more seats until we spent day, hours and hours trying to work out why they weren't and decided they just, there was no way they were going to make it. And in 2015, certainly I wouldn't have told you necessarily in advance that David Cameron was going to clearly be remain as prime minister, let alone get an overall majority. So I think 2017 was the least surprising. 2015 was probably the most surprising. Okay. I mean, libraries and coffee shops aside, are there particular methodological issues this year associated, maybe with tactical voting, maybe with the fact that the Brexit party aren't standing anywhere? Is there a specific thing or an issue that methodologically is making it? No, I mean, we've, we've done some relatively narrow refinement. I mean, there are one or two kinds of constituencies we go, oh, maybe we should have one or two more in those kind of places. But for the most part, what above all we want is just to go back to the same places. Because if we go to somewhere new, we don't have the baseline data from the previous exit poll upon which we usually normally rely. But you know, occasionally we are forced to move, and, we, and insofar as we've been forced to move, and that gives you a little bit of flexibility about reshaping the, the sample, a little bit of that has happened. Um, but um, no, it, it, and look, you know, it's it's an extremely difficult exercise. There's no guarantee we're going to get it right. People have a have a rosy memory of what we said in 2015. They kind of think we called it right. Well, actually, we said it was Tory 316, and it was in the end it was Tory 331. But you know, was, you know, the only reason why people hailed us the savers is that we're just closer than the polls. But you know, actually, that was one of our less accurate. Um, uh, uh, enterprises. Um, so, you know, I would, you know, comes with a health warning. It's all a bit of fun, as Peter Snow used to say. And the great thing about it is that nobody can blame us for, for influencing the result because nobody knows what we're going to say until 10 o'clock. So, and the aim of the exercise is just to try to give people a guide as to where we might be heading. And then when the early results come in, to get some idea of whether or not actually, given those early results, we do or don't seem to be heading in the direction we thought at 10 o'clock, or actually do we need to recalibrate? And it just enables you to recalibrate calibrate uh, uh, rather more quickly than would otherwise be the case. But, you know, um, beyond that, I mean, I think people take it far too seriously, to be honest. Spe I mean, speaking of which, and this is, this is the final question of the fanboy section, so we'll get on to something a bit more serious afterwards. I, I, I hope that all those politicians who queue up to say, well, it's only an exit poll, when they hear something they don't like early in the evening, come and apologise to you later on and admit you were right after all. Well, um, uh, by 2017, they'd learnt their lesson. <laughs> um, 
So, I mean, Paddy Ashdown, God rest his soul, um, both in 2010 and 2015 said we didn't believe you, and in 2015, of course, said I'll eat my hat. So, um, Andrew Neil ensured that there was a marzipan hat for him to read later in the day. And equally, on that occasion, um, uh, 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 not Carmichael, um, uh, the Blair's former um, press person. Alistair Campbell. Alistair Campbell um, uh, all, he said something similar, so he was also presented with something to eat as well. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean I'm relaxed about this. I mean, to be honest, you know, if I were Paddy Ashton, I would probably say the same thing in those circumstances, you know. Um, but the interesting thing about 2017 was that nobody challenged us. You know, nobody went, and they all went, well, um, okay, I know, um, and the, you know, they either just stayed silent or you know went, oh gosh, your pee, which was the kind of some of the some of the reactions on the Labour side. Um, uh, so you know, um, it, it, it's all good fun, um, mm. and it's great. You know, I have I take no great concern about politicians saying it might be wrong, but they stop saying it's wrong because they've, <laughs> they've discovered that it's perhaps not a very good bet to say we've got it wrong. But, you know, maybe this time uh, they'll be silly not to say we're wrong, but who knows? Um, um, but, yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, you know, because of, you know, a method that seems broadly speaking to work and also an awful lot of luck, we've come up with some forecasts that have ended up being reasonably correct. And if you start doing that, mm then people stop saying the exit poll is always wrong and, and well actually maybe we should at least at minimum suspend our disbelief even if we're not necessarily going to um, buy into it. Well we've got the new story, John Curtis forgets Alistair Campbell's name so tweet that out with you. Uh, right, you started doing this in the 1970s and since then there have been a lot of technological innovations, oh, you know, God, the internet yes. phones and so what, what has this meant for the polling industry? Has it been disruptive, has it been helpful? Um, it certainly completely changed it. So um, if you go back to uh, polling, frankly, up to 1992, um, the dominant method was face to, what we call face-to-face -face quota sampling. So um, interviewers would be told, go off and uh, interview in Wimbledon. Um, so there's a kind of uh, a geographical location. And find you know, six women, six men, um, six people with middle class jobs, six people with working class jobs, um, you know, three people under 30, two people between 30 and 50, etc., etc. right? And they then had the freedom to go away and find the people who fitted their quota. Um, so that's the way it was done. Um, one of the obvious downsides of that, I mean, you know, long, long arguments about the merits of quota sampling in that kind of way, and the way in which, for example, you know, one of the things that we used to debate at that time was, does this, does this tend to bias um, interviewers knocking on the doors of people with short drives rather than those with long drives, okay? Because, you know, at the end of a long drive, you know, it's more difficult to get hold of, and that does that, therefore, as a result, even though they <laughs> might be filling their quota, actually mean that they are missing out on perhaps some of the most more affluent voters in our society. Um, and um, that... Uh, uh, approach um, and the other disadvantage is it, it takes a while. So now we're used to poll, polling being done literally through to what six, seven, or eight o'clock the evening before mm. polling day, and coming out that evening only an hour or two later. Well, that's one of the things you can do over the internet. Um, so, um, and indeed, one of the reasons why the polls got it wrong in 1970, which is the first post-war polling day, but uh, was that they stopped polling too early, and there was a last-minute swing um, in okay. Edward Heath's favour. So. Um, uh, that's what we did then. The telephone polling did not take off for a very long time, not least because we knew and discovered, particularly in the 1980s, that even if you controlled for people's variety of demographic characteristics, you know, how old they are, what kind of job they did, etc., etc., that though that people without a telephone were more likely to vote Labour than people with a telephone, because these are the days before everybody had a landline, let alone you know, the mobiles that everybody now carries ubiquitously. Um, and that therefore, as a result, um, there was a reluctance to engage in, in, in telephone voting, uh, 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 polling, because of the uh, potential biases. Well, eventually we got to something like, in the 1990s, we got to something like 95% penetration. And that, so therefore, the bias you know, began to be too small. And telephone polling has certain advantages, like with face-to-face um, -face voting, you've got to send somebody to Wimbledon. But with telephone polling, you can ring anywhere. 
Mm. So you can have a much less geographically concentrated sample, and that statistical theory will tell you means that it improves the efficiency of the sample. Um, Internet then kicks in, well, I think YouGov's first attempt, if I remember rightly, is 2001, though they, you know, it's relatively sotto voce. Um, the Internet um, has created opportunities, and that's now the way in which it, it, it normally happens. But one of the things about telephone interviewing was you could actually, with telephone interviewing, do random digit dialing, literally just ring any number at random. And the point about that is you were actually getting closer to the way that statistical theory says you should do a survey, um, and indeed the way in which most academics historically would prefer to do surveys, which is literally people being chosen at mm -hmm. random, okay? Because even with the quotas, anyway, it all depends on people yeah. to advice, right? But the internet, you certainly can't do random sampling because there is no sampling frame of all of the email addresses or anything else um, that, that, that exists. Um, and that's why we've gone down this path now. You know, all inter well, not quite virtual. All the internet polling that you will see done for published opinion polls is done amongst panels of people who have, you know, volunteered, been persuaded, controlled, enticed, whatever a, a verb you prefer, to um, uh, uh, persuade them um, to. Um, uh, to join this panel of people and give some details about themselves. Mm. And the polls that are conducted are conducted amongst those people who have volunteered to do that. Now, the argument is that because you ask people a lot of things about them, about them including how they, how they voted in the past and all the rest of it, you can therefore know a lot uh, about the people that you are then trying to select to do any individual poll and you can therefore end up with something that's highly representative. And it's basically on that that most polling in the UK now rests, although there are still two companies. Uh, Ipsos Mori st still do all of their um, telephone, all their polling for politics, not other things, but for politics over the phone using okay. random digit dialing. And Servation use the telephone, although they're not necessarily doing random digit dialing. Um, so, uh, so, you know, face-to-face -face quota sampling is, you know, you know, ancient news now. So, yeah, I mean, the business, I mean, the, 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 the methodological world is completely transformed by, A, this, initially, the first revolution was the spread of the telephone mm -hmm. to becoming ubiquitous, and then uh, the spread of the internet, now also almost ubiquitous, but creates a very different methodological challenge. I'll tell you what, though, seeing as we've got you here, yeah. I want you to give everyone in this room the opportunity to go home and show off to their families by giving us the one-minute explanation as to why MRP is different, what's so good about it, and when it comes out at 10 o'clock tonight, everyone here can pretend to understand it. Right, My MRP stands for multi-level multi regression and post-stratification. Uh, essentially, what you Got that? You got that bit, <laughs> right? Um, so what it consists of is you get a very, very large data set. And with that, I mean, the, the YouGov one is 100,000 that's going to be based on tonight. Um, with, with a data set of that size, you can then say, OK, I expect people with certain characteristics living in certain parts of the country or in constituencies of a certain type to have a certain probability of voting for Labour. So it may well be that woman aged 35 to 45 who always wash their clothes in Omo and who have two kids, uh, one of whom is at private school. You know, uh, these people have a certain probability of voting Conservative or Labour or whatever. And you know how many people in every constituency have these characteristics. Mm -hmm. So basically, A, you've got a probability of people with a certain set of characteristics being likely to vote for each of the parties. You know how many people in every constituency there are with those characteristics. You basically take the estimated probability and multiply it by the number of people with that characteristics and do it across all characteristics that you've modeled, and you end up with an estimate. So in, in, in part, it's basically a different way of weighting a poll. I mean, no poll that you get reported is just simply the raw data. It's, it's weighted usually in such a way to ensure that the proportion of people in the sample with certain characteristics represent the country as a whole. But once you go in an MRP technique, you're actually beginning to weight it at a much lower geographical okay. level, okay? Which then can, can, means you can find um, um, uh, 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 bits that are missing or uh, under overrepresented you wouldn't otherwise do. But then, of course, what you can do is then because, well, you know, you're then using it to 
try to come up with an estimate in every constituency, you can then try, like the exit poll tries to do, is to come up with an estimate of what the outcome is going to be in every constituency given the current state of the polls. And the reason why people get ex got excited about it is that in 2017, YouGov were the first polling company well, no, sorry. There were one of two polling organizations to do this for the first time. And they came out and said quite firmly from the beginning, it's going to be a home parliament. They were abused, disbelieved, met with complete incredulity. And in fact, as um, uh, Ben is admitting in a conference this afternoon, actually, um, they managed to under, underestimate the number of Tory seats um, and, 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 and did so in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect okay. uh, given what the poll was saying. But the point, therefore, is because they were so much closer like everybody else in the same way that we in the exit poll were so much closer in 2015 than everybody else, heroes, right? But in 2017, there was a second MRP exercise done for Lord Ashcroft which was forecasting a majority of 60. So there's nothing magical about the technique. It's as good as the data, mm -hmm. and it's good as the modeling. Now, the guys who are doing the modeling are serious statisticians. They know what they're doing. And I think it's probably fair to say that this is going to be modeled in a more robust fashion than the, some of the other MRP efforts that have come out recently. Although those have also been done by people who've got quite a lot of experience with it. Um, uh, uh, but. Um, if the data is crap, the MRP result will be crap, okay? And if they miss an important source of variation in party performance, then their estimates will be out. So it depends on the creativity and the ability of the analyst to spot the patterns, and, the, and also for the polling companies still to come up with adequate data. And Ashcroft's problem was that his data wasn't as good as YouGov's data was. Okay. Now, one of the things about polls nowadays is they move markets. Uh, yep. And you're president of the British Polling Council. I was just wondering, is there, is there a potential ethical issue with private polling being used by financial institutions or of polling organizations doing some polls and publishing them whilst doing other polls for pro these sort of companies and holding them private? Um, what's your definition of ethical in that, in that question? Whatever you want it to be, John. OK, well, let me take it first of all. Uh, I mean. You're right, this issue has been raised. It, it, it was raised particularly by Bloomberg um, in a mm. story last year. Um, and shall we say, the rather remarkable feature of this story was apparent, it gave the impression at least, that it thought that polling companies are doing um, a polling for private, uh, private polling for financial clients was unethical, but somehow or another, the guys who were shorting the pound or whatever it is they were doing on the markets were, of course, were completely and utterly blameless. Uh, I wonder why. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it was Bloomberg. Um, so, um, I mean, in the light of um, a now soon-to-be ex-cabinet uh, minister, but one-time secretary of the Treasury Select Committee, getting somewhat a little um, exercised by uh, this story, um, the Financial Conduct Authority did actually go away and investigate. Um, and did issue some guidance. It just happened they issued the guidance on the same day as Parliament came back at the beginning of September, so it's taken a while to, to bring it in. So to cut a long story short, um, there is nothing illegal about polling companies providing financial data to um, uh, uh, providing polling data to uh, uh, financial organisations um, in advance um, uh, so, so long as that financial organization has, you know, if, if they've commissioned that poll, mm -hmm. right, and they're paying for it. Um, but the crucial thing is that um, the, the data must never be published, right? So the point is, if, if the publication of that poll were going to, was, were, if so, so if you do that kind of polling and then you publish it at 10 o'clock, then the... Um, financial organization has inside information, or yep. is what might be regarded as inside information, okay? Because whether polling is inside information, as the FCA says, you know, it, it's not always clear. 
But if you, uh, because the point is, then it's it's not going to be the result that moves the the, the markets because mm. eventually the markets will move if the poll is right on the market. Is that the poll will move the yep. markets? Okay. So um, therefore, the private polling is certainly legal, and shall we say? I mean, you, I mean, as some people have pointed out, I mean, you know, would you necessarily have regarded it as unethical? if in advance of the 2016 EU referendum, the Bank of England had commissioned private polling in order to give it guidance as to what it was going to face at, uh, uh, when the uh, results of the European Union referendum came up. Because certainly, you know, it was a perfectly open secret that the Bank of England had staff up all night uh, to work out what to do if, if, if necessary. I mean, so, you know, and I, I, so therefore I would suggest at the end of the day, the argument about ethics as opposed to legality is an argument as to whether or not you regard people um, trying to short the market is or is not ethical. And that is a broad, much broader argument. But, that, you know, what, if you're going to willing to accept that maybe organizations that are responsible for maintaining the stability of the markets might be given access to information. And at the end of the day, I mean, these are all ways of informing the market. Okay. And, Financial organizations engage in all sorts of research in order to try to anticipate what might happen to the price of assets down the trap. And polling is arguably not any different. So, I mean, I mean but the other thing that then this does also imply, that, as it were, what you certainly can't do is, you know, if you're doing a, a poll and you're putting it under embargo, and again, you might even not want to put it under embargo, that's becoming less and less common, because it just comes out. You certainly don't want to make sure you give it to a financial house um, uh, uh, before um, it uh, goes out into the public debate, because again, it becomes the risk of, of inside information. So basically, if you do it, keep it private. If you're going to make it public, don't give it to a financial organization until it's in the public domain. And that seems to be the basic rule. Brilliant. OK, I'm going to try and squeeze about five or six more in. And the first of which is, I mean, polling doesn't just move markets. It can change voting intentions. Do you think there's a case to be made for a longer moratorium on polling before election day no. in this country? Um, uh, I mean, I mean a, a variety of reasons. I mean, one is, um, why should voters be denied the information about how their fellow citizens are trying to vote? Two, if you put a moratorium on uh, a, a polling, uh, then politicians can go out and say, everybody's going to vote Conservative, or everybody's going to vote Labour. There's a big swing towards it. And we have no way of checking it, right? So um, polls actually help to keep politicians honest to agree. You've seen Joe Swinson in the course of the last 10 days basically having to admit, maybe I'm not going to be the next Prime Minister after all, right? Um, and that's the polls keeping him honest. Um, n uh, um, number three is actually you do create a market in inside information, yeah, yeah. not uh, not uh, not a uh, financial market, but a political market. Indeed, I mean, I, 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 I one of my uh, uh, tutors um, was very interested in French politics, and every uh, time there was a French election, he would wander off to Paris and Lyon and and, and talk to folks. And um, it, I think it was the election that Mitterrand first won, which is what 1975 or whatever. Yeah, it is. Uh, 81, right, um, that um, the, um, he had access to the private polling of the Socialist Party, yeah. which told him that, he was, that, who, that Mitterrand was going to win, right? He rings up his wife, who's in Oxford, and tells her to put a lot of money on Mitterrand winning. So, I mean, actually, there's somebody betting on the markets with inside information, all right? Um, and manages to pay for the cost of his research trip, which, of course, was an extremely noble enterprise, <laughs> as we would all agree. Um, um, so, um, uh, so, and so the point is, if you ban polling, I mean, the private financial organizers definitely will reckon it's worth their money to, um, and, uh, to, to, to engage in polling. The political parties will have access to the polling. Um, but as it were, everybody else gets shut out, except that, of course, and this is the final problem, is that actually you won't shut everybody out. All you have to do, all you can do is to stop the publication of polling within the UK by UK registered organizations. But as the French discovered, all you have to do is to go and buy a URL on a website that's registered somewhere outside the country. Yeah. And you cannot stop uh, foreign uh, uh, news organizations or foreign websites from publishing. So basically, the internet has crashed the idea that you can stop this. Um, and uh, the French now have only got a 24-hour ban rather than a week ban. And that's partly because people were buying uh, a, a web space on, in Belgium or in, in, in Switzerland and just putting the material that way. Okay. 
Now, I mean, you're obviously a public figure, but do you, do you get the sense, particularly since the Brexit referendum, that the sort of appetite for academic expertise amongst broadcasters, amongst politicians, has increased? Well, of course, your organisation is doing an absolutely Correct. brilliant job, Alan. Uh, I guess that's what I was meant to say in response to that question. Good answer. Uh, and, and has been doing say it again. its level best uh, to inform uh, uh, politicians. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, partly because of the importance of the decision. I mean, certainly, um, you know, those involved in the financial world are clearly very interested. The diplomatic world is very strongly interested. And occasionally even the old politician seems to be interested in what actually might mm -hmm. be the position. And you and, I, and, and certainly officials are very, you know, civil servants. Very so there's certainly a, a, you know, a, a ready market uh, uh, for this. I guess, however, that for those of us who went through the Scottish independence referendum, there's a slight sense of deja vu because, you know, there was a lot of intense interest then as well. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, you, know, I, you know, I suppose it's true. But on the other hand, you know, at the end of the day, um, politicians will be politicians. And if they don't like the evidence, they'll ignore it. Mm -hmm. OK. And I've experienced that for many, many years of trying to provide the occasional bit of, um, uh, of evidence. And you know perfectly well at the end of the day that too many politicians prefer um, uh, policy-based evidence than evidence-based policy. And that's not... Uh, something that uh, seems to be stopped in the middle of the Brexit debate. Do you find maintaining impartiality a challenge? No. Can you tell us what you see as the difference between impartiality and balance? And do you think most of our broadcasters get that right or wrong? Well, I'm, 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 I mean, I, I don't have to deal with that, as it were. I mean, I mean impartiality for me uh, means, you know, nine times out of ten, even if the weight of your comments appear to be advantageous to one side rather than another, you find the odd point that you go on the other hand, all right? And that is making sure that you are indeed providing an indication. And the one sense, it's rather more marquee. If you kind of say, you know, this is the weight of evidence, or, you know, it seems mm -hmm. to be on this side, but, you know, obviously there are these other considerations. I think it has a certain greater degree of credibility than if you just say, well, it's obviously that, you know, this is right and this lot is wrong. Um, I mean, I mean, you know, I think within myself, you know, I mean, yeah, do I have political views? Yes. Do I tell anybody? Absolutely not. I guess the only check I have internally is make sure that you tell the things that are disadvantageous to what might actually be something that you would prefer to happen. All right. And that's the kind of internal check. Um, but I mean, so, I mean, so, so I mean, as an, as an individual, balance is indeed about you know, almost deliberately being on the one hand or on the other and pointing out the advantages and disadvantages. And nothing is ever black and white in life. Mm. And to that extent, at least, you know, it probably is now. I mean, obviously, a broadcasting organisation faces a rather different challenge, which is, you know, that basically, if you've got an argument between three or four political parties or two sides in a referendum. You know, even if, you know, apparently the weight of opinion or expertise suggests that one side is talking crap and the other side is right, you kind of have to allow everybody <coughs> to articulate their arguments because that's what it's about. So, you know, I mean, you know, just to take one very simple example, I mean, I, I think both you and I said publicly on probably a number of occasions that there wasn't a cat's chance in hell of Boris Johnson uh, with, I thought it was perfectly possible for Boris Johnson to get a deal, but there wasn't a cat's chance in hell of him getting it through the Houses of Parliament between the 15th of October and the end of October um, mm. uh, uh, last month. Um, and, you know, broadcasters would occasionally question this, but they just, they just kept on saying, no, we will do it, we know we'll do it. You know, if, if, Parliament, can, if Parliament can pass the, uh, the, the, the Dangerous Dogs Act in two days, they yeah. can get Brexit done in two days, right? You know, and obviously now there is another argument going on where, shall we say, the balance of expert opinion suggests that it's going to be something of a challenge uh, for a Conservative administration to uh, be able to negotiate a trade deal by the end of December of next year. But it doesn't stop the politicians keeping on insisting. Usually, of course, by the... I mean, whenever politicians use analogies, you know they're in trouble. So... Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I well remember, so well, this is now going back to the 2015 election, when the Tories 
um, kept on saying we're going to take eight billion off welfare cuts, and then people uh, off welfare, and then they kept on being asked, "How are you going to do it?" Oh, well, look, you know, you can trust us because we've already managed to cut this much off off welfare anyway. In the end, they did not manage to cut eight billion off welfare. All right, and equally now, the argument is, "Oh, look." Everybody said that Boris couldn't get a deal, which of course is wrong. So you set up a straw man. It was perfectly obvious that the potential room for doing a deal was basically to go back to what the EU originally offered as opposed to what Theresa May insisted on. Right? This was not rocket science, and eventually Boris got there. Um, and, but, 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 you know, and, and then that, you know, um, it, 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 we can't assume that because you know, Boris books a room in Thurston Manor on the Wirral for an afternoon and talks to Leo Varadkar, and that kind of solves the Northern Ireland problem. That the analogy of, you know, Boris managed to sort that, so therefore he can sort the rest of it. I mean, the, 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 you know, it, it's as ridiculous as the argument that you're still kind of, the Labour Party is still clutching to, which is, look what happened in the 2017 election. We are therefore bound to rise in the polls, all right? Again, argument by analogy in politics is often extremely suspicious. And when politicians have to operate by analogy, then you go, hmm, not quite sure this is right. Because if you can't actually argue why the particular situation that you are facing is going to be resolved in a way that is credible, then Houston, I spot a problem. I mean, one of the reasons I ask that is because a lot of people throw around this phrase, we as a country are more polarized than we've ever been. Yeah, we is that quite. true? Well. It depends on how you define it. I mean, if you define polarization as um, basically people, basically everybody either more or less supporting getting, uh, leaving as quickly as possible, preferably with a deal, but if necessarily without one, or could we please cancel the whole process and kind of go back to square one? And these are the two dominant positions. Mm -hmm. So we're polarized in the sense of we're on the extremes. And as kind of kept on arguing elsewhere, you know, we've got a U-shaped curve on attitude towards Brexit. Um, and that's why, why the Labour attempt to keep on forging a compromise always has to we, we are, There is relatively little support for compromise positions. Mm -hmm. OK, point one. Uh, we're polarized in the sense that you know, the, 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 the social division behind the Brexit decision is a really, really serious one. And it reflects fundamental differences of interest. So, excuse me, younger voters voted overwhelmingly for Remain. Older voters voted overwhelmingly for, for Leave. Uh, graduates voted overwhelmingly for Remain. Those with less than the way of education qualifications voted uh, heavily for Leave. And you know, insofar as in particular immigration was a central issue, you can see why. If you are young, and you've got a degree, and therefore you've got pretty valuable labor market skills, you can use freedom of movement. Immigration has always been a young people's phenomenon. Right? In contrast, if you are an older person with less in the way of labor market skills, immigration is something that happens to you. You're never going to go off to Barcelona or Berlin or whatever to earn your living, or very unlikely. Um, you are, on the other hand, you know, you've lived in this place for 30 years. It's a hitherto been a relatively uh, uh, socially uh, uh, and ethnically homogenous uh, society. And then you discover relatively high levels of net inward migration beginning to occur. And you go, this is not the country I was brought up in. And these are people to whom immigration happens. Yeah. These are not people. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of loose talk but, you know, on, uh, about on both sides of the, the, the Brexit argument about you know, it's in the country's interest to do X or Y. Well, you're going to go, whose interests? Because this is not an issue on which it's clear that there is a national interest. There are different. So, to that extent, you know, kind of, we have to be at least little Marxist to some degree on this subject. You know, there are differences of real interest there which are being translated, and it's a major, major social division. All right, and mm -hmm. and also a fair degree of incomprehension between the two sides as well. And then the third thing, of course, in a sense, makes us polarised is that you know it's 50-50. Yeah. So, so, so we've got a deep division which cuts the country down in half and um, uh, where apparently we're either all inners or outers and not much room for compromise. I think that's polarisation. Okay. Got one last question before our quick fire round. What's going to happen in the election? 
Oh, that is part of the quick fire round. <laughs> uh, look, there's a 66% chance that the Tories are going to get an overall majority. They clearly, clearly are the favourites. But as explained earlier, 12% is not sufficiently far ahead of 7% uh, this far out um, that we can assume that they're home and dry. And it, it is a binary election. It's either the Tories get a majority or they don't, and everything turns on that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, at the moment, I would be much more likely to expect a Tory majority than anything else, but we're not necessarily there. Brilliant. Okay, ready? I thought that was quick. No, that was quite quick, yes. By my standards, it was. Beer or Burgundy? Burgundy. Beetles or the Stones? Beetles. Cheddar or Camembert? Cheddar. Oasis or Blur? Don't know. <laughs> well, someone has said who to that one before, so I mean, it's like, yeah. Exactly, All right, okay. that's the point, you know, Shame after on you. the 1960s, I've mean, lost. You know. Beef bourguignon or steak and ale pie? Steak and ale pie. I've always assumed they were the same thing, really. UK in a changing Europe or any other think tank you care to mention? <laughs> UK and it's changing Europe, Alan. You've been absolutely brilliant throughout the last three years, well, and I'm sure you're going to continue to do so in what we, both, both you and I, both suspect is still going to be a quite substantially long running saga. Well, listen, I know you've got a knighthood jump, but I'm going to give you something even better. <laughs> a beer and <laughs> Brexit monkey. Thank you ever so much. It's been great.